Matthew 9, 18 through 26. I'm going to start my timer here. And I want you to see that today we're going to be confronted in this passage by a request. That is, Jesus will be confronted by a request from a bunch of local synagogue officials who will come and ask Jesus to heal his daughter. And on the way to heal this little girl who was dying, and in fact she had died, he's going to be confronted by another woman who has a terrible condition of bleeding that has separated her from God and from fellowship. Now today in both healings that Jesus performs, you're going to see that Christ alone can reverse the condition of death and separation. In the first instance, you're going to see Jesus alone can get rid of the separation because of uncleanness and sin that the older woman has, but he also can heal the separation of body and soul and physical death that the little girl has. And so today we're going to be reminded that Jesus, the Messiah, can heal both kinds of death, whether it be spiritual or whether it be physical. He's the Lord of all. Now, I want to begin today in verses 18 through 19. Here we're going to see that Jesus' conversation with John the Baptist's disciples is interrupted by the synagogue official's desperate plea. That's where we pick it up. Notice it says, while he was saying these things to them, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus got up and began to follow him and so did his disciples. Now, let me pull up my pointer here for just a moment. I want you to notice that Jesus was in this conversation with them. Okay, and who was the them? Well, those were the disciples of John the Baptist. And you remember last week, we were talking about this discussion Jesus had as to why he and his own disciples did not fast. Well, that is interrupted now by the synagogue official. And I want you to notice here that synagogue is italicized. That means it's not original to the Greek text, however... I think it's a good translation by our English translators because, indeed, this is a synagogue official or the term literally, our cone is ruler, and that's probably who Jesus was meeting with. Now, let me talk about the role of the synagogue ruler in Jesus' day. They had three primary functions. Number one, they were the ones who would settle any theological dispute that would arise, and there would have been a lot of them with Jews wrangling over Scripture in the synagogue in Jesus' day. The second thing they did is they were the ones who handed out the honors for those that would be given the chance to speak and to read from Torah or the prophets or the writings. The third thing in the major function that the synagogue ruler had is that they were the teacher and the one who exposited the law, the prophets, and the writings, and they were the main teacher within the synagogue. Now, in Jesus' day, I think most of the Galilean Synagogue officials probably would have been very suspect of Jesus' ministry. However, you see that this man demonstrates trust in Jesus. And we see it not just by what he does, by bowing down, but we see it through his request. Notice, first of all, he bowed down before Jesus. The term bowed there is proskuneo, and elsewhere in Matthew, it does refer to the worship of Christ and other places in the New Testament. However, here, it's not exactly clear whether the man is worshiping Jesus as God or perhaps he's simply bowing down in reverence or respect as a teacher or perhaps even in desperation. But what tips us off that he has faith, and I think saving faith, is what he says. Notice he says, my daughter has just died, and then he has his request. First of all, notice the status of his daughter. She's dead. In fact, the term for death here is an unusual one. It comes from telutao. It's actually the term that we have for the teleological argument. The idea literally is that my daughter has come to her end. And that really plays into the sadness which is in this man's heart. So it's not that his daughter is dying. In his mind, she's dead. And so notice here then the request. He says, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. That's a trust that this man is demonstrating in Jesus Christ. And certainly, I think it's a faith that really shows he sees Jesus as having authority over life and death itself. Brothers and sisters, think about God alone has this kind of authority. And so either this man trusted Jesus was God 
or he believed at least God had endowed him with power over life and death itself. Now, interestingly, notice in verse 19, without any discussion, Jesus and his disciples follow. They're just going to follow this man over to his home. But on the way, as we pick it up here in verses 20 through 22, they're going to be interrupted by another woman who, for all intents and purposes, has spiritually dead through her problem of bleeding. And I'll explain why I say that. Notice here Matthew 9, 20 through 22. It records, it says, And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. At once the woman was made well. Now, dear ones, notice, first of all, that this woman is described as suffering from a hemorrhage. Does everyone see that on the screen? That's just bleeding. And more than likely, it was menstrual bleeding. And the problem with that, because she could not stop it, she was always unclean before God. According to Leviticus chapter 15, and if you're a note taker, you can write this down, Leviticus 15, verses 25 through 27, a woman who was menstruating with blood was unclean before God. The problem is anyone who touched her or came into contact with her was also unclean. And so what this meant in her life was that she was excluded from society. She was excluded from synagogue. Why? Because she could make others unclean. Remember, there was three annual feasts that men were required to go to, but often the women went with. That was Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. She was excluded from that never hearing the word of God, never around Israelites, excluded from God, excluded from society. For all intents and purposes, she was spiritually dead, separated from the communion of the Israelites with their God. Now, how long was she suffering that problem? Well, notice it was 12 years. Interestingly enough, Mark has a parallel account to this passage. And in Mark 5.42, Mark records that the little girl that Jesus is on the way to go heal, she's 12 years old. And Mark makes a point to say there's one is suffering for 12 years, that's this woman, the other one's the 12-year-old. In both cases, they really represent a different type of death. This woman, a spiritual death, separation from God and society, the little girl, physical death, separation of body and soul. And so what Matthew and Mark are crafting for us is the idea that Jesus can heal both. He has all authority over any kind of death. Now, very interestingly, this woman comes up behind Jesus, and she wants to touch him, notice, on the fringe of his cloak. The term fringe there is interesting. The term in Greek is karspadon, but in Hebrew, it's much more fun to say. It's tzitzit, not a zoot suit, tzitzit. Now, what is tzitzit? It is a tassel, if you recall, that God commanded all Israelite men to wear according to Numbers chapter 15. And so this is a blue braided cord or a tassel that would have been affixed to their outer garment. And I think that's what's being referred to here with the cloak. Now, in modern Judaism, you will see these tassels affixed to a prayer shawl. That is not the way it was in Jesus' day. It was affixed to the outer garment. Now, again, if you're a note-taker, you don't have to turn to this, but jot down Numbers 15, verses 37 through 39. Let me try to build a case for you. I'm going to show you why I think this woman is wanting to touch the tassel. That's what this is, this fringe of Jesus' cloak. So, again, if you're a note-taker, I won't have you turn to it. I'll just summarize. Jot down Numbers 15, 37 through 39. Now, let me explain what happened in that passage. That's where God commanded Israelite men to take these fringes, these tassels, the tzitzit, and attach them to the kanaf, which is the corner of their garment. Kanaf sometimes is rendered wings because the garment would look like wings. And so the idea then is that these tassels were to remind the Israelite men of the commands of God so that they would not sin against the Lord. Well, with that in mind, Where were they to attach these tassels? To the kanaf, the wings of their garment. Turn your Bibles again to Malachi 4.2. 
Malachi 4.2. Remember we talked about this passage a few weeks ago. Malachi, remember, is the last book of your Old Testament. Turn to Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. Now, as you're turning there, remember, I mentioned Malachi 4, 1 and 2 is about the future day of the Lord. Verse 1 is about the judgment of the ungodly. Verse 2 is about the salvation of the believer. And so notice here in Malachi 4, 2, this is still in our future. What will the day of the Lord be like for us? Well, Malachi prophesies this. He says, but for you who fear my name, and of course, that would be the believer, he says, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Now, I won't go any further than that in the passage, but notice this idea that there would be healing in its wings, that there was going to be a new day that dawned when the Messiah came. And remember, I explained that that was an allusion back to 2 Samuel 23, where the original David brought in righteousness and healing during his rule, how much more the greater David, the Messiah, the Lord of David, when he brings in his righteous rule. His rule will be like the dawning of a new age with healing in its wings. But notice the term wings. Does everyone see it in Malachi 4.2? That's the term kanaf. That's the same type of term. That's the same term that's used for the wings of the garment in which the Israelite men were to attach their tassels. Now, what I want to explain is I believe that there was a Jewish folktale regarding the interpretation of Malachi 4.2. The Jews correctly understood that this is about messianic salvation, but in the circles of the common person, they started reading into it that the text was about the Messiah himself and that he would have healing in his kanaf, his wings. Now, why do I mention that? Notice here this woman wants to touch this. And she reasons, notice on the screen, notice in blue, it says, if I only touch his garment, I will get well. If I only touch his wings of his garment, his fringes, I'm going to be made well. A lot of scholars today say, well, she's just superstitious. She thinks that by touching, he's, she's going to get healing from touching. I don't think it's superstition. I think the idea is she's saying, I believe he's the Messiah. Because the Messiah to her in Malachi 4.2 had healing in his tassels, his wings. And so by her reaching out from behind, what she's really saying is, I believe you are the Messiah. Very profound. Now, notice here, Jesus in verse 22 makes sure that we all know that this healing was not some magical property as if touching Jesus automatically makes power come out of him. But rather, he makes sure she knows that, in fact, the healing was by her faith. Notice he says, daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. Now, dear ones, I want you to think about that. The faith made her well. It wasn't the touching. And that's significant. Healing power only comes from God. I'm talking about miraculous healing power. Jesus is God. But Jesus' healing power ultimately unto salvation is only for those who believe. It's not for those who don't believe. In fact, notice the term when it says, oops, I just got rid of my pointer, sorry. Notice where it says your faith has made you well. The term well there is so-so. It's the term literally for saved. In fact, it's the perfect tense, indicating something that will be ongoing the rest of her life. She's saved. Well, what kind of salvation? In fact, again it says, and at once the woman was so-so. She was saved. What kind of salvation so-so has to do in the Greek New Testament with being saved from some sort of peril? What kind of peril was she in? Well, of course, she was in the peril of being excluded from God and the people, never hearing the word of God or partaking in the rites and the rituals of Judaism and Israel. But she was also excluded from the forgiveness of sins but at this moment, that she, the moment she trusts in Jesus Christ, her spiritual and her physical separation were over. Not only did she have a physical healing, she had the greatest healing of all, which is the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. She was saved in the most comprehensive sense. That's the idea that Matthew is driving us to. Now, as we continue here in verses 23 through 26, 
Jesus now is coming to the synagogue official's home where he's going to deal with physical death, separation of body and soul. Matthew 9, 23 through 26, it says, When Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players in the crowd in noisy disorder, he said, Leave, for the girl has not died but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. This news spread throughout all the land. Now, dear ones, notice here in verse 23 we have the scene. What is the scene? Jesus comes to the, official, his, his, the official's home, and he finds a bunch of flute players and this big crowd. What were they? Well, they were professional mourners. If you lived back then and you had a death in the family, you would hire mourners who would play the flute and various instruments, and they would have funeral dirges, etc. Well, the wealthier you are, the more flute players you could afford. Now, what's interesting is Jesus doesn't care for them being there. Why? Because this little girl is going to come up out of her death. And think about the fright that she must see if all of a sudden a bunch of funeral mourners are around her when she gets up. So notice here in verse 24, it says, He said, Leave, for the girl has not died, but is asleep. Now, some have wrongly taken that phrase, asleep, and they've taught the doctrine of soul sleep. That is not something that the Bible teaches, and Jesus is not teaching it here. What soul sleep says is that when a Christian dies, yes, their body goes into the ground, but they don't have a conscious existence in heaven. They're asleep until the resurrection. That is not what Jesus is doing with the term asleep. He is using a euphemism. A euphemism softens death. Why? Because those who belong to him with the power that he has even in death, it's almost as if they're just asleep because he can waken them up. And so notice, this is part of the comfort Jesus brings. And notice they, what? The crowd began laughing at him. They scoff at the power of Jesus to raise the dead. And you have to know, dear brothers and sisters, that in every generation, you're going to have scoffers who scoff at the power of Jesus Christ. I'm dealing right now in some debate with a full preterist. A preterist is a person who believes that the resurrection is not physical, it's not future, it all happened in 70 AD. They're a scoffer at the power of God. Think about in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter talked about those who are in the last days, which is what we're living in ever since the first advent of Christ, who mock and say, where is this coming of Christ? There's no resurrection, there's no judgment coming. They're mockers and scoffers. And so, dear ones, I think you and I have to challenge ourselves when we look at the power of Christ and say, where am I? Am I a scoffer scoffing at the fact that Jesus can raise people bodily from the dead? Or am I one who says, yeah, that's exactly what he can do? That's exactly who Jesus is. Which are you today? One who believes or one who scoffs? There's only two options. I would say to all those who do scoff, that you're not scoffing at just any mere mortal. You're scoffing at the Holy One of Israel. That's something that will not be tolerated on the last day. Now, in verse 25, notice here in blue, it says, But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. The term got up, actually, is agaro. Literally means she was raised up. And actually, I don't really like that translation. I don't know why I used it, the New American Standard Bible, but it's a garrow. It's not that she just got up. She was raised up. This is a resurrection from the dead. Jesus raised her from the dead. But notice how he does it. It says that he took her by the hand. And a careful reader of the book of Matthew will realize that when Jesus heals, he doesn't use a formula. Sometimes he touches, sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he speaks, other times he just touches. Think about back in Matthew chapter 8. Remember the centurion who said of Jesus, You're not, you don't have to come to my house. I'm not even worthy of having you under my roof, the centurion says. But if you just give the word, I know it will be done. And so Jesus gave the word from afar, and the centurion's servant was healed. But here, in this instance, Jesus heals her, raises her from the dead, 
and he took her by the hand. And I want you to think about how tender that is. Not only is Christ the one with such power that he has power over life and death, this Jesus of Nazareth who can raise the dead is the one who spoke and the universe leapt into existence. But he's also so tender that he takes a little 12-year-old girl by the hand so that when she gets up, she's not frightened. Think about this girl is a 12-year-old girl. 12-year-olds don't just die. Something traumatic happened to her. It's either the disease or an accident. And that's the last thing on her mind. When she comes to Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of Israel, not only raised her from the dead, but gives her great comfort. That's the kind of love and the power that Jesus has. He raises her up and cares for her. Now, notice in verse 26, then it says, this news spread throughout the, all of the land. The whole region is starting to hear about the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to heal and to even raise the dead. Now, I want you to think of it this way. Think about the two deaths that we just learned about today. And think of it this way. The official daughter that Jesus just raised from the dead, she had death. She had a separation. That's what death is. I'll be laying that case out to you. Death is what? It's separation. She had a separation of body and soul. That is a physical death. And notice here on the screen, it says she was 12, year, 12 years old, according to Mark 5.42. The second woman that Jesus healed from bleeding, she had a separation from society and from God. It was like a spiritual death, and she had been suffering for 12 years. My point is I think both the little girl and the woman are used of, really for representing different, two different forms of death. Spiritual death, separation from God and society, Physical death, separation of body and soul. And I think what Matthew and Mark both do is they show that Jesus has complete power over death. It doesn't matter if it's physical separation of body and soul or spiritual separation from God. Jesus is the one that can bring the healing. Okay, now, with that, let me come to some applications. I have two points that I think logically flow from the text. Number one, we should understand the relationship between the different kinds of death. We should understand that there is a spiritual death that happens to all human beings merely by being born into this world. As it says in Ephesians 2.1, we are dead in our transgressions. We are spiritually separated from God. But the second kind of death is a separation of body and soul, a physical death. Again, Jesus heals both. When you come to faith in Jesus, he can handle both. And that's number two. We must know that Christ conquers death for those who believe, and it is only for those who believe. Okay, let's begin with number one. I want to begin laying out for everyone a biblical worldview concerning death. And point one that I would give to you is that death is not, as the atheist claims today, annihilation or the ceasing to exist. That is not the biblical definition of death. So when you die, it's not that you cease to exist, or that you're somehow annihilated later, that's not the biblical definition. Second, it is not, as the Eastern religions teach, reincarnation. So at death, you are one life form, and then you become some other life form depending upon how you live this life. Maybe you come back as a squirrel and you weren't so good, or maybe you come back as an eagle because you were a great person. That's not taught in the Bible. No, what the Bible teaches is that death is separation. First, death is a spiritual death, separation from God and his kindness and his blessing. The second death is a physical one in which you have a separation of body and soul. Let's look at the first kind, spiritual separation from God. Look at what Isaiah wrote about this, Isaiah 59.2. He says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Now, dear ones, the first thing I want to point out in this text is notice what creates the separation. It's iniquities. That's the same thing as sin. It's rebellion against God in thought, word, and deed. And it creates a separation between us and God. Now, also, I want you to notice that this separation is referred to as God hiding his face. 
okay? Hiding his face, meaning if God hides his face from you, you are an enemy of God. Remember the great ironic benediction. In fact, I will give you that benediction after the message today found in Numbers chapter 6, where Aaron was to bless the people of Israel. He says, may the Lord's face shine upon you. The Lord's face shining upon you means you have his favor. If the Lord hides his face or turns his face from you, it means you have his wrath, his disfavor. If his face is shining upon you, you're a friend. If his face is turned, you're his enemy. That's what biblical spiritual death is, separation from God. And this is exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. Remember in Genesis chapter 2, God clearly instructed Adam and Eve to do what? They were to eat of all the trees in the garden except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because the day they would eat of that, they would surely die. Now, the moment that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, did they immediately physically die? No. But according to Genesis 3.23, they were separated from God out of the garden. That's what we have to see. They were separated from God. What Jesus Christ came to do, and you can read about this when you get to the book of Revelation, is he came to remedy spiritual death and physical death. One day, because of faith in Christ, we're going to have access to the tree of life once again in the garden in the New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem is a garden. It's called the paradise of God. Paradiso literally has to do with a garden. So what was taken at the fall is going to be given back in the future eschatological age. But that's spiritual death, separation from God. We're no longer friends, we're enemies, and each person is born into this world with that condition. You don't have to earn it, you're born with it. And then you earn it because, again, you sin because you're a sinner, you're not a sinner because you sin. The reason everyone sins is because they're born spiritually separated from God. Now here, this is the other kind of death. Physical death is separation of body and soul. And here in 2 Corinthians 5.8, I think it's a great illustration. It's actually a positive passage. Notice Paul says regarding believers, he says, We are of good courage. I say and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Now, why is it an advantage for believers to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord? Because you and I have his favor. You and I are heading for resurrection. You and I in this intermediate state, we'll be dwelling with God in the new Jerusalem. And so what happens at physical death is the body goes into the ground and the soul for the believer goes to be with the Lord in the new Jerusalem, a conscious, glorious existence with Christ and the saints, awaiting for the resurrection and the uniting of the body and soul together. And so the apostle Paul can say it's a great advantage for this. For the believer, if you should die, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is not the way it is for the unbeliever. The unbeliever still has the same death. It's a separation of body and soul. But their body goes into their ground and their soul goes to a place called Hades. In Hades, they will suffer temporal torment and it'll never get better because they're awaiting their final judgment at the white throne judgment where they're sentenced to the lake of fire, that is hell, forevermore. Two different paths for those who physically die, depending upon whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. But again, what I want you to see in both instances is you have spiritual death, separation from God, we're now rebels, no longer friends, and also physical death, separation of body and soul. And I want you to see on this next slide that both of these deaths were a direct result of what Adam did in the garden. Adam was the first representative for the human race, and he failed miserably. And by the way, you and I would have as well. Okay, now notice here, Romans 5.12, Paul says, Therefore, just as through one man, there's Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, notice here, the big picture I want you to see is that death came through what? It came through sin. And the sin of whom? Well, of the one man. So how were we spiritually separated from God? Well, through the one man, Adam. 
and through his sin. How do you and I physically die? Well, through the sin of the one man, Adam. And so that's why we needed a new representative, a representative that could live the perfect life that no human could. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we needed. And brothers and sisters, at conversion, the moment you believe in Jesus Christ, both forms of death are over. First of all, spiritual death, you're no longer separated from God. And then one day in the future, physical death will be remedied by the resurrection at the rapture. But the moment you believe, both forms of death are done. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. Romans 5, 1 through 2. And as you're turning there, remember, I'm laying out for you that death is separation. Spiritual death, separated from God. Physical death, separation of body and soul. Notice what Paul says here in Romans 5, 1 through 2. And as you're turning there, remember, he's already explained that justification is by faith alone and Christ alone at the end of Romans 3 and through Romans chapter 4. Now in Romans 5, he's talking about the benefits of justification by faith. Notice he says, Romans 5, 1, he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Stop there. We have peace with God. No longer is God's face turned from us. His face is now shining upon us. Remember the ironic benediction, may the Lord's face shine upon you. We went from enemies to friends, rebels to sons and daughters. That's what occurred. Now, notice the result of this verse 2. He says, through whom also we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Does everyone see that term access? Some of your versions will say an introduction into his grace. I prefer the term access. The term is prosagoge. And the idea is that you and I had separation prior to the moment we believed, but the moment we believed we had access. No longer enemies, but now sons and daughters. What kind of access do we have? Access to his grace. You and I can come before the throne of grace and find help in our time of need, as it says in Hebrews chapter 4. No longer separated. The moment you believe, you have access to God. Dear ones, every single person in this world is born into the world spiritually dead. Again, you sin because you're a sinner. It's not that you're a sinner because you sin. Now, what happens to believers? Let's talk about death, the second death that happens to them. We see this in Revelation 20, verses 14 through 15. Notice in Revelation 20, 14 through 15, it says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. First thing I want to mention about this passage is it's called the white throne judgment. The only people that will be here at this judgment are unbelievers. It is exclusive to them. No believer will be at this judgment. Now notice here in this text in verse 14, it says, Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Many scholars will argue that death and Hades is what's called a hendiadis. A hendiadis is where you take two terms but you mean one thing by it, namely that they are synonymous. And I would largely agree. However, I think there is a nuance to both death and Hades. Death accentuates the state. A physically dead person is in the state in which there is a disembodiment of their body and soul. There's a separation of body and soul. That's the state they're in. Their location is accentuated by Hades, a temporal place of torment for the unregenerate, that is, for the unbeliever. Every, how many unbelievers are going to be there? Everyone. Everyone. The only way out is through faith in Christ. Every human being that does not bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ come to faith is heading for this judgment. What is the judgment? It's the lake of fire. Now, notice here, the lake of fire, if you read the rest of the text, it is eternal, it is forever, 
It is unrelenting forever. They will be enemies of God. They will never experience the shining of God's face, but only the turning of his face. And there is no greater fear that anyone should have than to always be perpetually the enemy of the Holy One of Israel. Think about the worst day you've ever had. It'll be magnified far beyond that, and it will go on forever. The lake of fire. That's for every unbeliever. Notice here, John says this is the second death, the lake of fire. Now, why does he call this the second death? Well, because he's assuming that the first death, which is spiritual death, that already has accrued to every person. How many people are born into this world spiritually dead from God? Each one. We are all dead in our transgressions, as it says in Ephesians 2.1. How many? Each one. And so the first death that human beings experience is a physical one, separation of body and soul, because we're already born into this world separated from God, spiritually dead. But the second death for the unbeliever is to be sentenced to the lake of fire. That's the second death. And so, dear ones, what we have to know is what's the remedy? Uh, Bob DeWay has famously said, if you're born once into this world, you're going to die twice, physically and then separated from God forever in the lake of fire. But if you're born twice, you only die once. That's exactly right. You must be born again. What does it mean to be born again? Literally born from above, regenerated by the Spirit. Because the Spirit enables you to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. No one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. That's what Jesus is referring to in John chapter 3. Well, let me tell you the bad news. The bad news of the Bible is that all of us are rebelled against God and all of us are heading to this lake of fire that you read about in Revelation 20. That's bad news. But the good news of the gospel, remember, what does gospel mean? Good news. Good news what? That the Vikings got a new running back? That you might not get audited by the IRS? That your son or daughter is getting a new job? No, of course not. The good news is about the person and work of Christ. You see, based on our predicament, the plan from the beginning by God was to send forth the Son. The Son who existed as God and with God from all eternity at a point in time in history humbled himself and became a man through the virgin birth so that he would be truly God and truly man in one person. And he did that so that he could live the perfect life that none of us could. Why? Notice on the screen, he had to be the new Adam. Because the first Adam brought us what? Sin, death, and hell. But Jesus Christ brings us righteousness, life, and the resurrection. So Jesus lives the perfect life so that by faith in him, his righteousness can be credited to you because you don't have any of your own. I don't either. We don't have any of our own. But Jesus didn't live the perfect life only. He did that. But he also went to a cross. And on the cross, he died a substitutionary death. Jesus the just on behalf of those who would trust in him, the unjust, in order to bring us to God. Jesus Christ upon the cross took upon himself the full measure of God's wrath for his people so that you and I could have the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. Proof that Jesus did this was seen by the fact that on the third day after his death, he was bodily raised from the dead. It was bodily. I'm dealing with people who deny that. Jesus was buried, it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 4. You can't bury a spirit. He was bodily raised from the dead. On the third day, he bodily ascended later to the heavens from where he sent the spirit, from where he's sitting and he will return to bring a glorious kingdom and a resurrection for those who believe, but wrath and judgment upon those who don't. What must we do? Jesus doesn't give a suggestion or a helpful hint. He commands all people in Mark 1.15 to repent and to believe the gospel. Repentance, first and foremost, meto naeo, means a change of mind. Meta is after, noeo is thinking. It's an afterthought. Not an afterthought in, in the sense of being frivolous, but the idea is it's a change of thought, a change of mind, where we were living in rebellion and unbelief, and we turn from that, and we turn to faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Today, if you will trust in Jesus Christ, the separation is over. 
You're no longer spiritually separated from God. You're his son or daughter. And one day in the resurrection to overcome the grave. That's the great promise that Jesus Christ gives. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has authority over every kind of death. Now, Matthew portrays Jesus is certainly having authority over life and death. But I want you to realize that this is all over the Scriptures. In fact, notice here in John chapter 10, Jesus calls himself the great shepherd. The great and good shepherd is the one who lays his life down for the sheep, but he also has the power to take it up again. That's the power that he has. Notice here in John 10, 10, Jesus is contrasting himself with the wicked shepherds. He calls them nothing but a thief. He says, the thief comes and only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, notice the term abundantly there, periosos, meaning beyond measure, beyond whatever could be expected. And what kind of life is it? Physical life, yes, in the resurrection. Remember that text from Malachi 4.2? We're depicted when we're given our resurrected bodies is frolicking about like little calves who at first time have realized their legs. That's how excited we're going to be when we're given our resurrected bodies. And I tell you what, I'm excited. I'm going to run a 4240. I'm going to be the fastest guy you've ever seen. I'll just be burning around. I'll probably, and I'll never pull a hamstring doing it. And you're going to be all, all of you, all the problems you have, it's all over. It's all over. Why? Because we're going to have life abundantly, but it also starts now. No longer spiritually separated from God, we're his friends. His face is shining upon us. No longer enemies. We have the access to the throne of grace. We have access to the creator of all things in prayer. We have life abundantly. We have one another, the gifts of the Spirit. All of that is ours. Why? Because he came to give life abundantly. Notice how Jesus, no one can take his life from him. He lays it down, but he takes it up again. John 10, 18. No one, he says, has taken it away from me regarding his life, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This is the commandment I received from my Father. Brothers and sisters, Jesus laid his life down on the cross to spare us from the wrath of God, but he had the authority and the power to take it up again. Jesus Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 15.23, is called the first fruits of the resurrection. Let me explain for those that are unaware of what the first fruits was. God commanded the Israelites to do something called a wave offering. They called the first fruits to celebrate that after Passover. You can read about it in Leviticus chapter 23. Now, what was this wave offering? Well, remember, being after Passover, they wouldn't have much of a harvest at all. The, the crops had just been planted. But what the Israelites were to do is they were to take a sheaf and to put what little crops they had, which would be very meager, and they were to wave it before the Lord saying, Lord, we have this little, this little tiny bit of the harvest, but we trust you because you're a good and gracious God. One day the rest of the harvest will come. Jesus is the wave offering. What it is, it's saying we have this much, we have Jesus. But one day the rest of the harvest is coming. The rest of the harvest is you and I, all those who believe. That's why he's the first fruits. Brothers and sisters, Jesus can remedy any kind of death, any kind of separation. Now, let me leave you with a text I think is very exciting. But I want to review what I'm claiming today is that in our studies in Matthew 9, 18 through 26, I'm, what I'm claiming is that both the women, the, the woman and the girl, represent two different kinds of death. Again, I'm claiming that the woman who was bleeding for 12 years, for all intents and purposes, she was separated from Torah and the people of God. It was like spiritual separation. And again, let's remind ourselves that bleeding isn't sinful before God, but what it shows us When the woman is bleeding and according to Leviticus 15 has to be separated from God, it shows us that human beings, even being human beings, not doing anything wrong, we are still short of the holy perfection of God. God is so holy and other that those who have imperfections that aren't even their fault can't be in his presence. That's how holy the living God is. 
And so this woman represents the spiritual death, but the little girl represents what? Physical death. What I want to show you in this very exciting passage in the rapture is that at the rapture, the separation is forever done. Both kinds. Let me show you. And back, in fact, I couldn't fit it all on the screen. So I'm going to have you turn to a passage in just a moment. But I want you to first turn to Romans 8.39. Romans 8.39. I want you to remember the great promise that Paul gave to every single believer in Jesus Christ. Turn to Romans 8.39. And as you're turning there, remember, this is that great crescendo that really begins in Romans 8.30, where Paul says, for those whom he predestined, he called. For those whom he called, he justified. For those that he justified, he also glorified. All the verbs are past tense. It's all been done by God, all by his power, all by his grace for us dead, wretched sinners. And then the crescendo, notice in verse 39, I couldn't read it all for the sake of time, but notice here, Romans 8, 39, he says, nor height, this is, by the way, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. That's the point here now, because we're heading for glory, the resurrection. Romans 8, 39, he says, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is death? It's separation. And in Christ Jesus, in its totality, whether it's spiritual, whether it's physical, it's done. That's the great promise. Where are we going to actually experience this, the fullness of it? It's at the rapture. It's at the rapture. Turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 4.15. 1 Thessalonians 4.15. I want you to read this section. I couldn't fit it all on the screen. One of the great curses that will be lifted in heaven is pastors will be able to put all of their data on a screen and it will fit. The curse will be lifted, dear brothers and sisters. 1 Thessalonians 4.15. Please turn your Bibles there. There's a connection I want you to see. Notice here Paul is comforting those at Thessalonica about dead loved ones who had passed. And he's going to explain to them that they are not, if they've died, they are not going to miss the rapture and the resurrection. So notice here, 1 Thessalonians 4.15, he says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. So he was instructed by Christ himself, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. There's that euphemism, they're physically died. So the physically dead ones are not going to miss the coming of the Lord in the rapture. Now, one thing I want to point out is, notice he says, we who are alive and remain until the coming. Does everyone see the term coming there? That's the term parousia. It's used 17 times in the New Testament regarding Christ, and each time it's used of Christ, it refers to his second advent, always. The reason I want you to see that is the rapture is connected to the parousia, the coming of Christ. Now, notice here the next verses, verses 16 through 18. Notice it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. First of all, who is coming to get us? Notice it's the Lord himself. The Lord himself is descending. That's what's called an adjectival intensive. It's exceedingly important. It's the same phrase that Jesus uses. Remember, his disciples see Jesus in his resurrected body, and they fear that he may be a spirit. And Jesus says, this is Luke 24, 39. He says, it is I myself, adjectival intensive. He says, a spirit does not have flesh and bones as I have. He was physically raised from the dead. I myself, the Lord himself, how did he die? Physically. How was he raised physically? How did he ascend physically? How is he coming? Bodily. Physically, that's the implication. Meaning, Jesus isn't sending a stunt double. He's not sending a surrogate. It's not an angel. It's not a vision. I talk to these rascals, these preterists. They say, oh, this happened in 70 AD because someone saw a sign in the sky. This isn't a sign in the sky. This isn't a bunch of stars that form a unique cluster. This can't be figured out astronomically, astrologically. It's Christ himself bodily. That's who's coming for you. Notice he descends. By the way, this is a problem with pre-tribbers on our side. They say, well, it's a secret rapture. Watch the Left Behind movie. You might be driving and all of a sudden somebody's missing. It's not going to be secret at all. Notice it happens with a shout. 
the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, oh, it's going to be very loud. The whole world will see it. No one will miss it. You might say well, to yourself, well, then why doesn't everybody believe in God after this? Dear ones, read the book of Revelation. The unregenerate, the sixth seal, they know the wrath of God is upon them. They still don't repent. They know it's the wrath of God, and they still won't repent. Why? Because their deeds are evil, Jesus said. They love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds are evil, John 3.19. The human heart doesn't change. It needs regeneration. doesn't matter how much evidence... Notice here, when the, arch of the, the archangel and the trumpet is blown, Jesus Christ will what? He will raise up those who are dead in Christ first. Those who have had a separation of body and soul at the time Jesus descends, that separation is over. They're going to be given their resurrected bodies. But notice then, we who are alive are going to get the same treatment as we're harpazoed, we're caught up to meet the Lord in the air. We're also going to be given our physical resurrection and the separation of body and soul is over. But I want you to notice here in verse 17, it almost seems like a throwaway line. We can read past it very quickly. Notice it says, and so we shall always be with the Lord. The separation is forever over. He goes to heaven. Where do you go? You go to heaven. He comes back to earth. Where do you go? You go back to earth. Do you know why you and I are secure? Because we're always with him. He's the life-giving God. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's not the, dead, the God of three dead guys. He's the God of the living. And because you're with him, the separation is over forever. No more spiritual separation. No more physical separation. In Jesus Christ, it's all done. That's who he is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that one day we're going to be with you forever. The separation will be over. And that wherever you go, we'll be in your midst we thank you for these great truths. We thank you for the promise of the resurrection. We do pray, Lord, in light of it, that we would live lives that are pleasing to you. We also pray for those who are currently separated from you, the unbeliever. We pray, Lord, that you give us words, your gospel, that you would regenerate their hearts before us, as that they hear the gospel, that they would repent and believe. We pray that you'd give us boldness and opportunity, and I pray for this upcoming study this year that those who are evangelized by the evangelism team, that they would be discipled in this Bible study, that they would learn about the great glories of what Christ has done and what he will do. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please stand, if you will, for the benediction.